This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold, and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights that thou would wish thine own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again, and thou be conscience calmed, see here it is, I hold it towards you. Hello, and welcome to a slightly different episode of the Words That Burn podcast. This one is Halloween-themed, and so I've chosen three poems filled with a sense of dread and the macabre for you to listen to and learn a little bit about alongside me. Few words have encapsulated the sense of dread that comes with the darkness and death of life quite as well as the poem you just heard. The Living Hand, Now Warm and Capable, by John Keats. Fittingly, it is something of a mystery poem, scribbled on the pages of another unfinished work. It's a fascinating piece of poetry, which came at the end of Keats' rather short life as he died at the age of 25. As a romantic poet, he rose to prominence in his early career for his mastery of poetry and unique turn of phrase. He set himself apart from many of his contemporaries through his focus not only on the beauty and majesty of nature, but on its dual side as well. Most romantic poets were dedicated to the pursuit of pleasure and aesthetic joy through words and lyrics, but Keats was convinced that in order to understand what it is to be human, the darkness of life had to be embraced as much as the light. Perhaps his own words say it best in a letter he wrote in 1818. The world is full of misery and heartbreak, pain, sickness and oppression, whereby this chamber of maiden thought becomes gradually darkened, and at the same time on all sides of its many doors are set open, but all dark, all leading to dark passages. We see not the balance of good and evil. We are in a mist. We are now in that state. We feel the burden of the mystery. To this point was Wordsworth come, as far as I can conceive that he wrote Tintern Abbey, and it seems to me that his genius is explorative of those dark passages. This poem is exceptionally dark in its own right. As I said, it was written in the final years of his career, when his work had diminished and critics showed no mercy. His health had begun to decline, and many believed these to be among his final lines. Perhaps this decline of circumstance explains the decay that seems to hang around the poem. This living hand, now warm and capable of earnest grasping, would, if it were cold and in the icy silence of the tomb, so haunt thy days and chill thy dreaming nights. Keats is all at once addressing his present and future. The warm hand here is more than likely his own, whereas the cold one is a reference to the death awaiting him. There's a phenomenal sense of atmosphere brought about with language like the icy silence of the tomb and verbs like grasping, which seem like a George Romero film, teeming with the living dead reaching from their graves. The spectre of death is embodied by the hand, constantly reminding Keats of his fate haunting his own days and dreaming. In the second half, a strange ritual is envisioned, that thou would wish thine own heart dry of blood, so in my veins red life might stream again, 
and they'll be conscience calmed. See, here it is. I hold it towards you. The reader is addressed here. There is a plea for a transfer of life force. Perhaps the previous lines were an appeal for pity. It is the reader who would be haunted by Keith's decline. His lack of vigour. His dwindling gift. A thing to be pitied. He is certain that those who listen would wish their own heart dry of blood to revivify both Keats and his career. Those who might be willing to sacrifice are left in no doubt that Keats would welcome such a gift, a chance to return to what was. In the final line of the poem, he ominously stretches forward, I hold it towards you. There is a strange claustrophobia, and the reader feels they may not escape. The language in this brief poem, barely a poem, is laced with the duality I mentioned earlier. The imagery seems to exist in opposition to itself. Warm, cold, living, tomb, days, nights, dry, stream. There is a continuous balance of life and death, darkness and light. For me, the poem is almost vampiric. It's hard not to imagine the likes of Bram Stoker or Edgar Allan Poe, taking a macabre inspiration from it years down the line. There is an intense finality to the words, one that tolls a fatalistic bell, one that perfectly matches the effect this poem has on the reader, haunting them well after they've finished reading it. That haunting, otherworldly quality is ever-present in my next choice. Even now, this landscape is assembling the hills darken, the oxen sleep in their blue yoke, the fields having been picked clean, the sheaves bound evenly and piled at the roadside among sinkfoil as the toothed moon rises. This is the barrenness of harvest or pestilence, and the wife leaning out the window with her hand extended as in payment, and the seeds distinct, gold, calling, Come here, come here little one, and the soul creeps out of the tree. This is All Hallows by Louise Gluck, the latest poet to win the Nobel Prize for Literature. She was granted the prize for her unmistakable voice that with austere beauty makes individual existence universal. The concept of austere beauty is very present here, becoming a kind of grim beauty in the strange, transformative process of each line. This poem is a kind of homage to Halloween all over. Her opening lines invoke much of the traditional imagery of the Celtic Harvest Festival, Sound, and Halloween in general. Even now the landscape is assembling, the hills darken, the oxen sleep in their blue yoke, the fields having been picked clean, the sheaves bound evenly, and piled at the roadside among sink foil as the toothed moon rises. As I said, Saun is a harvest festival in Celtic tradition, a moment filled with death and decay, but also the promise of renewal. It is also a moment where the veil between the world of the living and the dead is at its thinnest, allowing the two to collide. The imagery of such a festival is in every inch of this first half. Hills darkening, a reference to the cold and early darkness that descends in the autumn, as oxen sleep after countless hours of hard work, tilling, 
and harvesting. There is suddenly an empty feel. The fields picked clean, conjuring thoughts of skeletons and desolation. However, from the very beginning of this poem, the reader is left with a question. Is this really happening? The very first line, even now this landscape is assembling, seems to hint at a shifting setting. This would be very proper, given that All Hallows Eve is regarded as a liminal space or liminal time, a point of transition or change, a crossing point for realities. There is also the mention of Syncophoil, a small yellow plant which has been associated with femininity and witchcraft throughout the ages. They mark the path of this poem, hinting at the more supernatural occurrence at work. We come to understand that the other world and its rules is reaching the height of its power as the moon reaches its own zenith. And then, suddenly, the mood turns much darker. This is the barrenness of harvest or pestilence and the wife leaning out the window with her hand extended as in payment and the seeds distinct gold calling come here come here little one and the soul creeps out of the tree the language of infertility and loss begins to control the narrative twisting the poem into a sinister fairy tale there is a woman the wife mad with grief or frustration either from loss or perhaps infertility. This idea is driven home to the reader with words like barrenness and pestilence. They further the sense of unease. Something is wrong here. There should be no pestilence in a time of harvest. This wife has turned to the supernatural for relief. She is undertaking the archetypal act of offering payment for a favor with her hand extended and the seeds distinct in gold being offered. There is a pact being sought. The offering is reminiscent of the rituals of Irish folklore, where people would leave gifts for the fairies in exchange for their favour. The seeds, distinct in gold, are a reference to the bounty just collected at the harvest. In case there was ever any doubt that something supernatural was occurring here, the final lines lay it to rest. Come here. Come here, little one and the soul creeps out of the tree. To me, these lines can be read in two distinct ways. The first of these is that the wife of the poem succeeds and has a chance on the night where the living and the dead can coexist to communicate with her lost child once again. The words little one indicate that it is a child or at the very least, someone very young. However, the second reading is more sinister. The verb creep, used as the soul emerges from the tree, has always sent a shiver down my spine. It hints at the fact that this is more a creature than some benevolent spirit. The fact that it edges closer to her gives a sense of impending doom. She has made a mistake and is about to pay for it in a dear, dear manner. I find that this particular reading is a better close and far more suits our Halloween setting. If all hollows is a taste of sound and the Halloween spirit that it embodies. The next poem truly embraces Halloween's Irish origins. Sing a song for the mistress of the bones, the player on the black keys, the darker harmonies light jig of shoe buckles on a coffin lid, harsh glint of the wrecker's lantern on a jagged cliff, 
across the ceaseless glitter of the spume, a seagull's creak, the damp-haired, seaweed-stained sorceress, marsh flight of defeat, chill of winter, a slowly failing fire, faltering desire, darkness of darkness, we meet on our way in loneliness, blind Carolyn, blind Rafferty, blind Tig. This poem comes from the noted Irish poet, John Montague. Though born in New York, Montague was raised in Ireland, and his upbringing's influence is found in each and every line here. I feel this poem truly captures the eerie atmosphere of Halloween night. I also enjoy the strong references to ancient Irish culture. Rather than focus on any one specific myth or legend, Montague decides instead to use imagery that resonates with the Irish, archetypal images that have been found in our culture for centuries. The poem is broken up into three sets of nine lines. Each set of three lines is a strong invocation of place or experience. The images cascade in an even rhythm thanks to the repeated three-line structure. Each set of nine lines has its own theme. The first is music. The Mistress of the Bones is a possible reference to the bonfires, or bonefires, that communities gathered around and sang to. The act itself, a remembrance of the practices druids would conduct, casting the bones of slain animals in their harvest onto the huge fires as sacrifice. Then there is the image of the piano player on his dark keys, followed by the much darker image of someone jigging on a grave lid. The image a reference to the macabre phrase to dance on your grave, simply taking joy in the death of another, or rather, outliving an enemy. These lines are a strange inversion of the celebration that normally takes place at Halloween. They become darker, slightly twisted. The next set of nine lines follow the theme of oceans and chaos. The reference to the Wrecker's Lantern is particularly grim, as it references the terrible practice of wrecking, whereupon scavengers would use false lanterns to mimic a lighthouse, with the intention of purposefully luring ships off course to loot them after they washed up on the rocks. The ceaseless glitter of the spume, or sea foam, adds a kind of natural magic to the scene. This mystical tone sealed with the mention of the seaweed-stained sorceress, possible reference to the Celtic notion of the Kylock, the personification of weather and winter in the form of a crone. It is both a recognition of Celtic origin and a nod to the fact that November and the winter weather follows the festival. We move to the final section of Nine Lines, and the darkness of a Halloween night is granted an almost ritual quality. The slowly failing fire, another reference to the bonfires that litter the night, but this time emphasizing their decline. Revelry fades away. Winter takes hold as the heat of the fire and that desire fades like a memory. The darkness sets in, and as the poet walks home, he is met by the ghosts on what seems to be a cold, long country road. Blind Carolyn, blind Rafferty, blind Tig. An obscure and unusual reference, each man here is a renowned artist in their time. The first is a reference to Turlock O'Carolan, an Irish harpist and composer. Many of the jigs and reels that Irish people dance to on Halloween night are based on his work. The second ghost is that of Antoine O'Rafferty, 
an Irish poet often referred to as the last of the wandering birds. And finally, there is Blind Tyg, who is really Tygdall O'Wigan, another bard of phenomenal prominence who rode in Gaelge. Perhaps on this night, during the thinning of the veils, Montague feels that these long past poets walk with him and guide his work. Of the three poems, this one resonates the most with me. In Gaelge, Sound is the name we give to the month of November. And so Montague's poem encompasses not only Halloween night, but also All Hallows Day and the slow decay and bitter cold of the season that follows it. I hope you've enjoyed this slightly spookier episode of the Words That Burn podcast. The poems are meant to be listened to and enjoyed, and I hope my analysis hasn't taken away from the chilling effect they are meant to induce. These are, as always, my interpretations. I'd love to hear your own. If you'd like to talk to me about any of these poems, you can get in touch with me in many, many places. Send me an email at wordsthatburnpodcast at gmail.com. Find me on Instagram at wordsthatburnpodcast. You can find the show notes for this episode complete with full references at wordsthatburnpodcast.com. This episode was written and produced by me, Benjamin Colopy. The music for this week's episode was provided by Sergei Cheriminisov and is used under Creative Commons license. I wish you a very happy Halloween and I hope that you are safe and that you will join me again very, very soon.